it is so good to uh, gather together, and I hope uh, you're excited to be here. I hope, again, you're thrilled to be able to come into uh, the Emmanuel Baptist Church and praise God uh, for his goodness and for his grace in each one of our lives, and I hope you look forward to this time. I, I uh, certainly do. You know, I usually um, um, I get up on Sunday morning uh, probably around 6 o'clock, sometimes earlier, and, uh, and I really try to prepare my heart. I go over my sermons and everything else like this. And I, I really, this is my highlight of the week. You know, Sunday morning, uh, Sunday afternoon, or su- uh, Sunday night when we get together. And I just love this time uh, where we can praise the Lord. And uh, we've been looking, and I hope it's been a real blessing. Uh, the uh, church, we, re- we recognize that 3,000 people uh, responded. They separated from that, that which is false. And we've been asking the question, what did the church do after that? You know, how did it function? You know, and we've been looking at these spiritual disciplines that they were involved in. It's amazing, again, to look at these various different spiritual disciplines because they, need, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they needed them in their life. If they were going to learn of Christ, if they were going to see who Jesus Christ is and really expand their minds as far as the glory of this great salvation that they had in, in, in Christ. And they also realized that these uh, disciplines were necessary in their life if they were going to be a growing witness to the the unsaved world that happens to be around us. So for the last four weeks, we've been looking at verse verse number 42, and it reads like this, and it says, And they they devoted themselves, in other words, they gave themselves over to this, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And we recognize that these are all aspects that every true believer would say that is absolutely necessary in our lives. You know, where we start to shrivel up as Christians, we start to implode on one another, even as a church of the Lord Jesus. And they saw it as an absolute necessity having us be in, your li- in their lives. But let me ask you the question again as we start this morning. Do you see this as a necessity in your life? Do you see the meeting of God's people? Do you see the need for fellowship? The need for the breaking of bread that we're going to do a little later this morning. Do do you see that as necessary? Do you see prayer to this great God because we are so weak and so needy that happens to be in our life? Or do you think it's just for other Christians, maybe superficial Christians, so they would get serious about Jesus? Or maybe for those, again, who have a weak disposition, but not for us who happen to be strong? When you look at the early church, they realized an urgency to be involved in these various different activities. And they were involved in these various different disciplines. You know, but the question I want us to ask, because all these are given that we might be so Christ-focused, gospel-centered on the grace of this great God. The question I really want us to grapple with for the next couple of weeks is basically this. How do we know that these disciplines, if we are involved in them, how do we know that they're really changing our hearts? How do we know that they're really molding us more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I think all of us have recognized various different individuals that happen to be, again, around, that we've seen, that have been involved in all four of these different uh, disciplines, but really haven't grown in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, really haven't changed as far as their disposition and passion for Jesus Christ. And we've known individuals like that. You know, sometimes they do these things in a very ritualistic, in a very cold, very bland way. And why? Because that's what good Christians do. You know, good Christians come out to church. Good Christians pray. Good Christians fellowship. Good Christians go through the ritual of the table of the Lord, but really there's no change that comes over their life. You know, they go through, again, in a very ritualistic, very cold, very bland way. And we've known individuals like that. 
Other individuals many times look at this and are very zealous about these four disciplines. But the reason why they're so uh, zealous about these disciplines is they want to prove that they're better than other people, better than other believers, better than others that happen to be around them. And it really free, uh, um, uh, feeds a pride. You know, basically, God, look at me. Look at what I am doing. Look at how I am following what you have said we ought to be busy in. Rather than glorifying, rather than growing in his grace, rather than growing in the immensity, again, of seeing Christ, to be amazed that he died for such people as us. You know, and a lot of other people, you know, and this is a bit trickier because this is, some, this is something that should be involved in our life. A lot of people, when they come to these four disciplines, love the intellectual stimulation. In other words, they love to talk about the deep things that happen to be again of God. You know, they love to have conversations. In fact, they're drawn towards people who love to have these deep conversations. But really, when you look at their lives, their character hasn't changed. Their relationships haven't changed. They haven't become more patient, more forgiving for those who sin against them. And so the question becomes, as you look at these various different disciplines, and we realize that they're given that we might reflect Christ, we might see Christ, we might know Christ, we might be in awe, again, of all that he has done for us. How do we know that these disciplines are really changing us? You know, changing us more to be in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the answer is right there. You know, these disciplines really change our character. But in changing our character, they change, again, our outward manifestation, how we relate to God, how we relate to the world, how we relate to others. And here's the amazing thing. In the rest of, of uh, chapter number two, in other words, in verse 43 and following, you really see that dynamic. You see the change of character that's manifested outward. In other words, they had a great awe of Jesus Christ. You know, they were amazed at that. They saw God and they recognized God. They could look at the world. They could look at the church and see God working in the midst again of that church. You know, they really cared for one another. And you could see that care and the concern. They were willing to sacrifice what they had for the welfare of those that happened to begin around them. And no sacrifice was too great you know, that they would give for those that happened to be again around. And there was a joy, a joy of Jesus Christ, regardless of their circumstance. You know, and that, that, all, um, that all boils over into a life of worship. You know, and so you can see that change of character that comes over them. The question, again, I have for us this morning is, do other people see that in you? You know, do other people see, again, a growing love for Christ and an amazement of what he has done in your life? in giving the salvation? Do, do you relate to others differently than you did before? You know, and are you growing in that? I really want us to challenge us, not with just doing these disciplines, but really letting these disciplines change us from the inside out when we see more of this grace and more of this glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to look how it changed these individuals. You know, and I want us to see a couple of things this morning, and I hope it'll be a blessing. I hope it'll be a challenge to you. I hope, again, it'll be an inward conviction, again, if you don't see these things. You know, and one of the great character qualities that you see in, an early, in the early church is an awe of Christ. You know, a great awe, a great splendor, a great magnificence of looking at our Lord and Savior. And you can see that in verse number 43, because look at what um, Luke writes here. He says, an awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And it's amazing to look at this because there's so much that happens to be in the word of God that is just splendor. 
You know, that just, it just it should create so much awe that happens to be in us. But, but I have a feeling many times, even with the hymns that many times we sing, we sing them in such a bland way. As if this is just humdrum, again, news. That this isn't just great and grand that happen to be there. And the thing you have to realize beyond a shadow of a doubt is the things that we are in awe of, the things that we are just amazed by, they hold our attention and we cannot look away. But for many people, Jesus just doesn't do it. But the more that they were involved in these disciplines, the more that they realized who Jesus was and what he had accomplished in their life, that it created this awe. And you can see that again in the text because it says this. It says, and awe, that awe came upon every soul. And when it says every soul there, it's talking about every believer. And when it talks about soul, it's not just talking about an external going through the motions and doing things. It's talking about, again, something that's inside of us, the deepest recesses of our hearts. You know, it's talking about, again, who we are in the inside. And when, when he talks about that awe, he's talking about that awe first inside, but that then it's manifested outside. You know, and that awe, again, has the idea of seeing the splendor, the glory, the magnificence of something that it holds your attention. You just cannot look away. You know, and the question we have to ask ourselves, because we realize it's related to Christ, but how were they having this awe? What were they in awe about? And it really, really would be easy to say, well, it's right there in verse number 43. You know, it's basically this. It's a sign and the wonders. You know, we'll talk about the signs and the wonders in, in a moment. But remember what a wonder is. Remember what a sign is. A sign, again, is an indicator. It's pointing to something else, isn't it? It's pointing, again, to some other truth, some other person. And in this case, it's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. And the thing that we have to look at is is the context. You know, and as we look at these four disciplines that were going on, remember we said that there was an order. You know, one goes to another, goes to another, goes to another. And the first one is the apostles' doctrine. You know, the apostles' teaching. And when you look at that, what is the apostles' doctrine about? It is about Jesus Christ. And, and, and I, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes do you come to the word of God and are you amazed by what you read about Jesus Christ? Does it just take your mind away, your heart away? Do you just have to um, stop and breathe because of these truths? You know, I think a lot of times we just read it and read it and read it and we never think about what we're reading. I mean, take a, what, uh, what John wrote, again, in his introduction, his prologue to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1 and verse number 14, he says this, And the Word became flesh. Did you hear that? Right? Who's the Word? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here it is. And the Word became flesh. And guess what it did? Guess what it did? And it dwelt among us. It tabernacled among us. It was here. And we have seen, this is what the disciples say, say, and we have seen his glory. What's the glory of? You know, is it just a glory of scenery? Just the glory, again, of fun and things? No, no, it's a particular glory. The, as, the glory as of the Son from the Father. And what's it full of? It's full of grace. It's full of truth. And I wonder, as we read these scriptures as we read these truths, is there a weightiness about it that creates an awe in the deepest recesses of our soul? In fact, um, Mark Jones wrote a book again called Knowing Christ, and this is what he says about this verse. He says, what are the most shocking words in the scripture? 
Questions like this are usually impossible to answer, but the words of John 1.14 would certainly rank among the highest for shock value for the first century Jew. The idea that Yahweh became flesh was considered blasphemy. The incarnation, listen to what he says, the incarnation, in other words, the enfleshment of deity, the incarnation is God's greatest wonder, one that no creature could ever have imagined. God himself could not perform a more difficult and glorious work. It has justly been called the miracles of all miracles. Wow. Does it take your breath away? You know, he quotes Herman uh, uh, Bavink, who happens to be, again, a famous theologian, and this is what he says about the incarnation. He says it is completely incomprehensible. In other words, unfathomable. We cannot, tru- we can explain it, but we cannot truly understand it. It is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself to some extent, make himself known in created beings. In other words, become a created being. And then we have these things that happen to be right, right here, because look at what he says. He says here, here, eternity. That's who God is. Eternity. This is what we are in time. Immensity. In other words, nothing can contain God. And, here, and here's Jesus in space. Infinity, right? In the finite. Immutability in change. Being in becoming. The all, as it were, in that which is nothing. The mystery of the incarnation cannot be comprehended. It can only gratefully be acknowledged, and may I say, and also, again, be gloried in. But the mystery and self-contradiction are not synonymous. In other words, these are not synonymous. This is a God who is greater and more glorious than us. And have you ever thought, again, as you read the pages of the Gospels, that the one that you're reading about, Jesus Christ, is fully God? The great creator God who is one with the Father and one with the Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the glory that the word that this second person of the triunity of God really took on human flesh just like us? You know, he grew, he had to sleep, he had to rest, he had to eat. He needed help for various different chores and various different responsibilities that were given to him. Because in his humanity, just like us, he couldn't do it again all on his own. And through it all, think about it, in every stage of life, in every trial that happened to be there, he was absolutely without sin. And you can imagine these first century Christians as I learn more about the identity of Jesus, as I learn more about the grandeur of who he is, how it created an awe. And here's the thing about awe. When we have an awe of Jesus Christ, the things of this world cannot, cannot hold sway over our hearts. Isn't it true? And we ask ourselves, when we look at this miracle, when we look at who Jesus is, can it get any better? You know, our hearts are full. And here's the amazing thing. It does get better. And you know why it gets better? Because he came for a definite purpose. Isn't it amazing? You know, when you look at these first century Jews, again, the, their guilt was easy to see. It was really easy to see. They called for the execution of this innocent man. Some of them stood by, you know, unmoved that he was being put to death. You know, and their guilt was so apparent. Their guilt was, again, so ready 
that happened to begin in each one of their lives. And there was an astonishment that this Jesus, willfully and volitionally, knowing their rebellion, went to the cross and died. You know, it's amazing, too, because you can imagine as they started making all these connections, especially again with the Old Testament scripture, and started to look at Jesus and started to remember some of the stories, some of the incidents, and even some of the things, and maybe some of the sermons that they had been present with, how everything started to click. And they probably said in their hearts, why didn't I see this sooner? I mean, did you ever say that about your salvation? Why didn't I see these truths sooner? It was just like the light came on, and what happened to be so evident, so easy to see, became evident to them. And the reason why, you, you, you know why? Because they learned this truth. Not only had Christ come, not only had, was God manifest in human flesh, not only did he live that perfect life for them and die in their stead, in their place, but God gave them the gift of faith. Without that gift of faith, they would have never trusted in this God. And can you imagine how that just increased? Because the greatest love that has ever been manifested is the love of Christ. is the love of who he is and what he came to do. And a lot of times we use words, and they're really, I would say, starting to wear out in Christianity. Words are like worthless, right? How about wretched, Right? Right? Who did Christ die for? For such a wretch as... No, 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 no. Let's change that word. That's too hard. You know, transgressor. You know, and why? Because you're important. You've worth. You're somebody. You're beautiful. And then when you come to the scripture, and I always think the, the key to seeing our sin is seeing who Christ is. It really is. You know, we can read all the verses again about sin, and we can say, yeah, 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 we all have sin. But when you look at Christ, when you look at his character, when you look at the character and the holiness and the grandeur of our God, all of a sudden we see, I'm that wretch. I'm that worthless one. But look at what my Christ came to do. Look at what he came to do to die for, for an enemy like me. And we're stunned. We're breathless. And so you can imagine, here are these people that mocked, that scorned, that cried out, crucify him, that stood indifferent to the suffering of this man. Now they stand amazed, mystified, entranced, held by the awe of the person of Jesus Christ, held by the awe of this good news that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. And think of it, because do we? Because that's the amazing thing about it. It's amazing how bitterness, envy, lust, anger, even boredom, and a whole host of other sins cannot stand, cannot be in us when we happen to be in awe of Jesus. There's just too much joy. There's just too much excitement. There's just too much glory when we see who he is. And all those things can't stand. And I really think this is the key in all of us struggles with sin. I think when we stand in awe of Christ, all of a sudden, spouses start loving one another. You know, the way that they should. Husbands start sacrificing for their wives. Wives start cherishing their husbands as, as a church cherishes Jesus Christ. Children, you know, adult children start loving their 
parents because of, look at my Christ. Not look at the worth of the earth. Look at my Christ. We start forgiving because we look at the great forgiveness, the exhaustive forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, the inexhaustible forgiveness that we have in Christ. And sin can't stand. You know, and when you look at this, when you look at here they started with the apostles' doctrine, here they fellowshiped and talked about these truths, here they celebrated about these truths and reminded every time they broke bread, here they prayed, God, take these truths and make them effective in our hearts. And they were changed. They were changed. It created an awe of God that happened to be in them. And it changed again who they were. And how they functioned. And we call that awe. If you want to know another word for that awe, it begins with a W. Eh? Anyone know what it is? Worship. Exactly right. right. Worship from truth. Worship from the heart in spirit and in truth. And so that's one spiritual quality that came again through the early church. Another spiritual quality was the ability to see God at work in the hearts and lives of those who happen to be again around them. And let's look back here at verse number 43 and see what it says. And it says, All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, these signs and wonders were really signs and wonders. You, you know, in other words, miracles were true, miracles were dynamic, and miracles actually happened. You know, and I know the argument that happens to be again out there. If you can just prove to me that these miracles again took place, you know, then I'll believe. You know, and let me say, a miracle by divine, uh, by definition, cannot be proved. Can it? You know, you, you know, you know. If I say somebody walked on water, I cannot prove that. You know, and why? Because it's a miracle. It's a suspension of the natural laws where God intervenes to do something that He wants to do, right? But here's the here's the thing you have to re- realize: God has given us a record of these things, hasn't He? In the Word of God. And so what we do is we study the reliability of the witnesses. We study the reliability of the record. And when we're absolutely convinced that these witnesses are reliable, there's no way to explain how Christianity all of a sudden went from this small little group that happens to be there, and kaboom, it grew over all of the world. All of a sudden, just like that, you know, people were believing. You know, and how did that happen? And we look at the reliability again of the record and we say, okay, okay, yeah, 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 these are reliable. If these are reliable beyond a shadow of a doubt, then this is what you have to realize. Then we have to trust. You know, if there's no other explanations, we have to trust that God did these things. And so when you look at these, these were signs and wonders. These were, these were things that uh, were part and parcel, again, of the early church. And we see this, and look at what it says again right here. It says, in many Right? I love that word. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So there's a twofold description there, right? You can see it. Wonders and signs, right? And what is a wonder? A wonder is, again, when we get back to awe. It's the idea that God opens up our heart. It's talking about, again, something that happens inside of us. We see, we observe, and it creates a wonder, a awe, a fear, a splendor, even a confusion. How can these things be going on? And it's created, again, in the deepest recesses of our heart. And then there's a sign. And remember what a sign is. A sign is a pointer and a director. So when you look at the cross of Christ, when Jesus, again, hangs on the cross, Pilate had a sign that was written above him. And the sign said what? It said what? It said, the king of the Jews. Now, the sign is not the king, is it? 
The sign is pointing to something or somebody else, and that's what it's doing. It's pointing to Jesus. So when you look at these signs, these signs are vindication, right? They're vindication. I'm going to preach a message, and I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's valid, that it's true, that Jesus is risen. Jesus has given his life as a perfect ransom for sin. And it validated the message. The most important thing was not the sign, not the miracle, but what it was beyond a shadow of a doubt was an indicator of the validity of the saving efficacy and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what they gave was a taste, these many, many, many signs. And when it says many signs, it's using the same terms that were used in the gospel. So it would have been like somebody has dead eyes, somebody has dead limbs, and all of a sudden they have eyes they can see. All of a sudden they have shriveled legs, and all of a sudden they're whole. You know, all of a sudden somebody has leprosy all over their, their, their body, and they come forward, and they are healed instantaneously, miraculously. You know, somebody who, who has a, a demon possessed, and remember what demon possession is, and it isn't like lying and scheming and all those other things, but it oppressed the person. It brought suffering in them. And all of a sudden they were cast out just as a moment through the name, through the person of Jesus Christ. And well, what did it give them? It gave them a, a taste of the kingdom. And who is the king of the kingdom? It's Jesus. How do you come into the kingdom? Through Jesus, right? It's all there. And all of it did was validate the message. Now, there's something important that we have to see. If we're going to have a correct theology about miracles, there's something important that we have to see in this text. You know, and that is, here's a question. Who did the miracles? And the answer is, the begins with an A. Apostles. Do you see it? It said many wonders and signs were being done and here it is, through the apostles, right? 3,000 are saved. And it's not saying all of them were doing these signs and wonders. It's not saying this. You know, the super spiritual that happened to be in this 3,000, they were doing these signs and wonders. That's not what it says. In fact, even in a couple chapters uh, after this, um, we read again, it was the apostles again, because in Acts chapter 5, in verse number 12, Luke records this. He records something similar. He says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the, what? Apostles. Right? More were being saved. More were being saved. More were being saved. Who's doing the signs? Who's doing the wonders? And it was the apostles. Right? And you have to realize that this was one of the signs of those who were given the task of laying what we know as the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Right? Paul, when he's defending his apostolic credentials in 2 Corinthians, says this in chapter number 12, in verse number 12, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience. Well, what were those signs? With signs and wonders and mighty works. Right? Not everybody! But the apostles, and the other two requirements of an apostle is that they had to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and they had to be commissioned by him. And let me tell you, if you take those two things, had to, had to see the resurrected Christ, had to be commissioned by him, you know, so let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, we do not have apostles today. Let me just say that as clear as possible. We don't have them. They were given for the foundation of the church. In fact, uh, 
a lot of times we say, oh man, we just wish that we had signed a wonder tonight. And, and I'll spend an extended time of this, if you can mark it on your calendars, it'll be 20 weeks from today. You know, and I'll spend an extended time again talking about this when we get to chapter number five. You know, 20 weeks. Yes, chapter number five in 20 weeks. You know, and, and I'll, t I'll uh, talk about that, but it's incredible again to look. Because when you look at it, we say, oh, we wish we had signs and wonders. You wish we had signs and wonders. If they knew what we had, all those people who said those, saw those signs and wonders would say, I wish what we had. I wish we had what they have. And you know what we have? You know what we have that they didn't have? You know? We have, we have this. Right? It not only records the signs and wonders, but it gives us the interpretation of the apostles' doctrine. It gives us that teaching right here, codified that we may know him. And it's amazing, too, because when we read about these signs and wonders, the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that this actually took place. These miracles, these signs and wonders. Now, the question is often asked, can Jesus do miracles today? Can God do miracles today? And here's my answer to it. Absolutely yes. But he's not going to do it through some gifted individual. And why? Because there's no apostles. Can he do it through the prayers of God's people? And here's the answer. Absolutely yes. Does he? And let me just say this, in rare occasions. Because what the word of God tells us over and over and over through the scriptures is we are called to give the witness of Jesus Christ through suffering in this life. The glory follows. But this life is a life of suffering. That's what he's called us to. These bodies will waste away. We will be persecuted. And we realize that. So here's the question again. Is there any miraculous, anything miraculous in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? And the way I would answer that question is why you were asking that question. And what you mean by that question. If you mean, again, are these signs and wonders, if many things again happening, then I would say absolutely no. But if you're talking beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are engaged in these disciplines to know this Christ, to know this great grace, to know this great gospel, we are, we, we are inundated with the apostles' doctrine. We are inundated with fellowship. We, are, we, we come to the table of the Lord to learn and to celebrate. And we pray that God would take these truths and really apply them to our hearts. Then I would say the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is full of the miraculous in his providential dealings in each one of our lives, each one of our lives who happen to be believers in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? I mean, I'm amazed. I look at a guy who got saved almost 40 years ago, and he was a young adult, and never even knew anything about Jesus Christ, except what was taught to him in his youth in a Roman Catholic church. Didn't want anything to do with Jesus. You know, ridiculed and mocked those who went to church. And he couldn't imagine ever becoming Christian, couldn't imagine it had a more boring life, couldn't imagine ever becoming a pastor. And yet here, almost 40 years later, God has done a work in my life. You know, here is it. Uh, 40 years ago, I didn't know where Windsor, Ontario was on the map. Right? To me, if somebody would have said Windsor, there's a Windsor in Nova Scotia, and I know what that Windsor. But I didn't even know. 
You know, and here we, here we are gathered. Here I am preaching this sermon to you 40 years. And we say, how did that happen? And there's only one answer. And you know what the answer is? Here it is. Jesus Christ and his grace. It's the only answer. Right? It's the only thing that can explain all of this. And even when you look at this particular group of individuals that happen to be gathered here on Sunday morning, you say, how did this happen? How could we sing these songs and even fumble over that one song this morning? How could we ever do this this morning? And there's only one answer, and it happens to be Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, that testimony can be repeated over and over and over and over and over again. Right? It's his grace. It's not our goodness. We don't say, wow, look at that guy. Look at that person. We say, wow, look at what that God can do with such unpromising life as of Kevin Scott. It's absolutely amazing. And what these disciplines help us to do is to help us to see this Christ who is active today through his church. I mean, it is amazing in each one of our lives. And not just active in the big things, but the everyday life, the ups and downs, the things that go around, the things to the left, the things that are right, uh, the suffering, the hardship, the bitterness, the disappointment, you know, the ugliness that happens at the beginning of our life. We realize beyond the shadow of it, and this is an amazing thing about being involved in these disciplines, we realize God is sovereign in all that. God is good in all that. And here's the amazing thing. We realize many times he's changing our character. We use the illustration of the guy with the chiseling out, you know, the, some sort of um, sculpture that happened to be there. Well, God's chiseling us, right? Taking those parts through all the events of life and making a trophy of his grace. You know, when we realize even suffering is in our life many times because as we reflect Jesus Christ, it encourages his people and it gives a witness of Jesus Christ. But so often... We don't know why we go through what we go through. But when we're involved in these disciplines, we're so convinced of Christ's love for us because we're looking at the cross that we pray differently. Have you ever thought about how, do you ever stop after you pray and say, I can't believe I prayed that prayer? Right? And then you go back to prayer and say, praise God. You know, I realize this is a work that happened to begin in, in, your, in our lives, but we pray things. Uh, we pray differently. Here's like this, Father, I do not know all the reasons why you brought this trial in my life, but I know it's for my good and your glory. Help me to be patient and loving and honor you. Help me display to your people the glory and joy of your grace in my life. Help me see you, honor you through these trials. You are the great God who loves me and knows what is best. You have proven that through the infinite love and wisdom in sending Christ. And let me just say, that prayer is not natural. It really isn't. But we utter those things, and why? Because we're involved in these disciplines and we see the greatness of Christ. We recognize what he has done. We recognize the manifest love of God through all of that. That this is how we pray. This is how we relate. This is how we see God in all of that. 
And it really changes us. It changes inwardly, but that inward comes out. And let me say this, say we can see it again in one another. If you happen to be a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when I spend time with you, when you spend time with me, we should be able to see the work of Jesus Christ in one another's lives. Isn't it true? We, we should be able to, but so often, you know, we get so bitter. We, we look at the warts, we look at the stains, and they're there. The warts and wrinkles and everything else, the blemishes are all there. But are we ever amazed that the people of God come back week after week, glorying in this great God, glorying in this great Savior, singing songs with deep, rich truths, with such passion and hope and joy? And, you know, some of you, I, I know the story of your lives. I know the opposition that you faced. I know the background that you've come from. And let me, let me say, through all of that, it doesn't speak of your greatness. It speaks of the greatness and of the grace of the God of our salvation. It's amazing. Our bitterness, animosity, and frustration, you know, is not a sign of insight. Right? I am so insightful. Other people can't see this, but I can see this. It's not a sign of maturity. It's a sign of not letting these spiritual disciplines work on our hearts that we see the greatness and efficacy where we see the unmerited, the ill-deserved favor of God in our lives. Right? And are you letting these graces have that work in your life. You know, or maybe you're not even involved in these things. You know, maybe, again, you've let the world cave in on you. And my prayer, whether we're not letting them or we're involved in them or not and not involved in them, is that we would be involved in them, but we would let God have his great work to see Jesus Christ this morning, to recognize him to be in wonder and awe of all that he has done in Christ, even in a sinner like me, even in a sinner like you. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Lord, your grace is sufficient. Your grace is amazing. Your grace, Lord, is lavished on your people. And God, so often... We can speak, and Lord, we can even define these incomprehensible truths of your character. But Lord, we fail many times to stand back in awe and wonder and worship. Lord, these truths are not given that we might feel big and grand and glorious but to show who we are to show our insufficiency to show our wretchedness to show our worthlessness Lord that in the end we would be amazed at your stunning your surprising your shocking grace that the word dwelt among us. And the apostles could say, and we beheld his glory, that 
of the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Lord, to think that this one came and he had us on his mind, his sheep. Lord, and to think that we were so dead in our trespasses and sins, without you opening up our hearts, we would never believe on Jesus Christ. God, may we be stunned. May we be stupefied. May we be held by these truths that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that we can now go to the table and rehearse these wondrous truths once again. Just be with us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.